Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library podcast is brought to you in part by our amazing Patreon members. I want to give a special shout out to them for being a part of supporting the show. If you'd like to join and get solo episodes inside my writing process, as well as the chance to submit questions for special Q&A episodes, you can check it out and join at patreon.com slash secret library. As we're getting close to the halfway point in this season, I wanted to answer a question that some of you may be asking, which is, okay, it's really great to listen to all these episodes and learn all of this material, but how do we put this into practice? How do I move forward and use all of this material in my own writing life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked because starting in April, we're going to release the next draft course where I will be walking you through all of the tips, tricks, and resources from the season, as well as the inside scoop on how I've applied it in the revision of my own novel. If you would like to get notified when the course is first available, you can subscribe to footnotes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. This is the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Manda Scott, who is an incredible author that I'm so, so happy to have on the show. She began with a series of crime novels set in Scotland, the first of which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize. She then moved on to author the best-selling Boudicca Dreaming series about life before the Romans and all that we lost when the Romans came. And she followed that by a series of ancient world spy thrillers. Most recently, she's written two crime books, Into the Fire and A Treachery of Spies, which weave the past and present together, with current-day police work intersecting with the past. In 2019, Manda won the McIlvaney Prize for Best Scottish Crime Novel for A Treachery of Spies. Now, A Treachery of Spies is where I first encountered Manda and her incredible writing. I was stunned at the level of historical detail in a crime novel that also weaves in with the past. It's pretty astonishing what she manages to pull off with this book. I devoured it in a manner of days, but I know it took years to get this right. So I had to have her on to learn about how she managed to make this incredible amount of historical accuracy that she brought in a total page turner that feels effortless to read. This is not easy to do, and I knew I had to speak to her, especially after she won the prize and was grateful that she wanted to come on. In addition, we talk in this episode about what it means to write in today's world, where there are so many crises facing us, and it's hard sometimes to feel like your book is the most important thing going on. So we dive into that as well. One note, there's a little bit of background noise in the beginning of this episode, but that part of the conversation was important enough that we decided to keep it rather than jumping ahead in the conversation. I'm really excited to have Amanda on the show. You can get notes, links to some of the things we talked about, and more information at secretlibrarypodcast.com. And now here we go with Amanda Scott.
Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, I really, given how many incredibly complicated books you've written that have such thorough grounding in historical backgrounds. As we're talking about revision this season, I really, really wanted to talk to you about the process of how much you knew of the history when you started writing the book and how much you kind of tailored to looking for in subsequent drafts. Because I could see myself writing a book like Treachery of Spies or frankly, any of your books and just spend the next 25 years researching the historical period I was dealing with both because I enjoy that and because they're so incredibly complicated. So I know there were several key ideas that you've talked about in your lovely blog that sparked the idea for Treachery of Spies, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how much you knew going into it and how much you discovered along the way, if that makes sense. Sure, it does. That's that's a really interesting question. And and delightfully, nobody's ever asked me this before. So, um, so... So I was a bit of a World War II geek when I was a kid. So I grew up in the 60s. And so for my parents, it, it was as if the war was still happening. You know, they were not either of them. They were children during the war. But, but rationing had only ended like 1957 or something. So the sense of it as being just around the corner was very real. And my father, I, I was a very geeky little kid who read books rather than actually talking to people. And all of my father's books were biographies of RAF pilots. And, and, and he had books of silhouettes of German bombers so that I could have recognised the difference between a Heinkel 110 and, and whatever else, I don't know, a Dornier, when I was about six, just because I knew what the silhouette looked like because I looked <laughs> the books. So, so that was there. So one of the interesting things, so when I came to write this, partly... I, you know, I'd done Boudicca, I'd done Joan of Arc, I'd done Rome, done, that's a very bad word, but anyway, I'd written about those eras, and I, and particularly with Boudicca and Rome, you know, by the time I'd finished, I'd been immersed in that particular 100-year span for about 15 years of my life, so that would have been undergraduate, postgraduate, PhD, and on into a professorship that I'd actually been an academic. There was very little about that era that I didn't know that was there to be known about. And then I moved to Joan of Arc, and it was a, a very steep learning curve of an era not only that I knew nothing about, but actually, other than that particular character, it wasn't really my time yet. It wasn't an era in which I had particular interest. I just was really interested in her story. Um, and then we got to the end of that, and we were selling that. And um, we tried to sell to the Americans, who said, Joan of who? Um, and I was slightly cross about that and, and was venting. I think to my that's own. completely reasonable. And having read this on <laughs> well, your blog, I was like, I object. We, some of yeah, us no, know. No. Yeah, like, well, of course you do. But, but, they, but, but then my, you know, my British editor said, yeah, but nobody under the age of 35 in the office knows who she's older. Really? Oh, really? Oh, okay. So then I was thinking, okay, fuck it. I am going to actually write a book about an era somebody's heard of. Um, and also I had read... I don't know if you know Neil Stevenson mm. um, and his amazing book, Cryptonomicon, mm-hmm. which I absolutely adored. And because until I started writing it into my mind, I'm sorry about the noise, that's the cat sticking in here to the cat, the dog sticking in here to the cat. Um, <laughs> I was not a great fan of dual timelines. I thought people only wrote dual timelines because they could not be bothered to get the current timeline right. 
And then I started writing Joan of Arc and it became really apparent that if I wanted to write the story that I thought was there, I had to write both timelines to make coherent sense of what happened in the past and how it impacted the present. And then I read Cryptonomicon and I thought, there's a dual timeline that really works because there are people alive in the early timeline who are still alive and their descendants are alive in the later timeline. And this makes much more coherent sense in terms of reading and of writing. So I looked at the world, Second World War and, and had been a real World War II geek when I was a kid. So I, then, I started, I had read a book, a single book that was a history of the CIA and, and discovered things that, about which I knew nothing, the, the impact of the Jedburs when they were parachuted behind enemy lines. And they were gods. They, they could call down weapons and food and alcohol and chocolate and cigarettes from the skies and they arrived and they lived in the mountains of France and they were physically and mentally at the peak of what it was to be human at that point and they had a free reign to kill anything in a German uniform and they were absolutely certain that they were on the right side. The people amongst whom they were living were absolutely certain that they were on the right side and that they were saviours and it must have been an astonishing experience. But then they tried to replicate this for the next, you know, however many decades. I think there are people still trying to replicate it now without realising that dropping into France, which is a Western-educated, industrialised, you know, rich, democratic nation, the whole weird syndrome, is not the same as dropping into Afghanistan or North Korea or South Korea or whatever. So I read that. And, and the main thing that really struck me was that I had known already about Klaus Barbie, who was genuinely one of the... If there is a definition of human evil, Klaus Barbie comes pretty close to embodying that. And yet, MI6 ran him from 1944 onwards, and then we sold him to the CIA when the CIA was formed. And together, the two, our two countries, the UK and the US, got him out after the war when the French very reasonably wanted to put him on trial and hang him. And we got him out down the rat lines to Uruguay, where he continued to do exactly what he'd been doing in France, which was unspeakable ill to other people, until he was in his 80s and, and of no use to anybody, and they handed him back to the French. And I thought there were a lot of moments when you could say that the compass, the moral compass flipped between who the people were who, who parachuted into France, who were without question astonishingly courageous. They, they embodied a, a level of courage that, that I could not begin to match. I'm looking at our own country and wondering at what point do we need to set up a resistance against the fascism that is rising and have I got the courage to be part of that? And you know, the, the death that awaited them was not kind or nice or quick and yet they did it. And then you look forward to what our nations are now and what the GCHQ and um, the NSA and all of those things, the NRA, sorry, have become the NSA. And and somewhere the moral compass flipped. And I really, really wanted to look at how that happened. How did the genuine heroism of the 40s turn into the abomination that we live with now? And, and that moment of, or that concept of, of it's okay to shield Klaus Barbie and to run him as an agent because the bigger picture matters more and the bigger picture is political. And I, I really wanted to look into that. So then all of my reading was, was around that. And, and the mm. amazing, having done Boudicca, 
Joan of Arc, you know, Joan of Arc is one of the most catalogued individuals of, of many centuries because there were people writing about her when she was alive. We have the transcripts of her trial and we have the transcripts of the, the overturning of the heresy 30 years later. There's a huge amount we know about her for a non, you know, technically or theoretically non-royal person. We know more about her than probably anybody else of that era, but we still don't know very much. But you know, in the Second World War, the, the, pretty much anyone who survived from being part of the Special Operations Executive wrote a book about it. Um, and and there's, you know, there's diaries and, and there's stuff that has only recently come out and you can compare what was written immediately after and the, the kind of smoke and mirrors that people did to hide stuff that they still didn't want people to know. And then the, the more accurate truth that comes out now. And it was, it was like falling into, you know, all of my Christmases all come together because there's <laughs> just an endless amount of stuff. So you're right, you could spend 25 years doing it. What I did was I spent, I think, three or four months just reading everything I could lay my eyes on. And then I wrote the first draft. Um, and then it's a bit like, I don't remember if you remember, I don't know if you remember. What, I know that when I was a kid in, say, French lessons, there would be the, okay, write an essay, write us a story about X, we'll give you a title. Um, and I discovered quite young that the skill was to write the story using the vocabulary that you know and not try to say things that you don't know how to say because that's going to fail, basically. And so then you write the story that, with the information that you have um, and, and then fill in the, the little gaps if there are little gaps rather than trying to write a story and then discover that there are huge gaps that you don't know anything about and are going to take six months to find out. Because the great thing, or the slightly more challenging thing about this era, is there are still people alive who were there. And that does not apply to Boudicca and Joan of Arc. However, many people come and tell me that their great, 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 many greats grandmother was in fact Boudicca. I don't have to pay an awful lot of attention to them. If somebody says, I was there and it wasn't like that, I absolutely have to pay attention to them. So I didn't want that to happen very often. So does that answer your question? I realise I've talked for a rather long time. No, it does. I mean, it, it of course, it creates more questions, which is always a good thing. Always good. I think I'm... So there's this idea that you have, which is, I think, also fascinating, that, you know, this decision between whether Barbie was more valuable as an asset or if he should be held accountable for what he did. And so that's in some ways a, a rather abstract philosophical question. So then how was it to take that question and then ground it in an actual story that has an actual plot that you felt adequately satisfied and answered that question for you? Yeah. Um, well, it took many iterations. I would have to say we did 17 drafts of this novel, but actually in this case, when I did, Joan of Arc, we did 14 drafts, and three of those would throw away the entire historical thread and start completely from scratch. Wow. In this one, it was throw away the entire contemporary thread twice and start completely from scratch because it wasn't working. The historical thread in this one was much more robust. So I think, so the first thing I had to do was make a decision of am I going to incorporate actual people, and I made a decision very early that I couldn't because I knew I wanted to look at the Special Operations Executive and the Jedwars. And there are, there are still people alive who were there. And there are also the children or the grandchildren of people whose entire lives have been lived in the shadow or the glory of these people. And to suggest, for instance, that a particular operative whose group was taken apart in 1943 and, and 1,700 people died very messily as a result. Um, 
I am I am not, I do not feel that it's my place to comment on whether who betrayed them and who betrayed how much at what point. That's not going to happen because it doesn't feel like that's my story to tell. Um, particularly given this particular individual, you know, there are definitely grandchildren who definitely think it's their story to tell. So I made a decision to create people who were a bit like Klaus Barbie, for instance. So there's an obvious character. I have no hesitation in making someone quite like Klaus Barbie. <laughs> um, but the others are all amalgams of several with bits that are entirely my own so that nobody can put a finger on and go, that's my great aunt or that's my father or any of those things because it just didn't seem fair. And that was that was a decision that had not, in, again, this is not relevant with Boudicca and Joan of Arc. I can use people from history with impunity there. So um, so having done that, then, then it's really a question of setting up. I don't ever write myself plots, mm-hmm. strictly speaking. I write, I write a mesh of these are the historical data points because you have to, you can't decide that the Allied invasion started on a different date. Or, right. or had a different outcome. Those those things are locked in history. And, and you know, Churchill is Churchill, and Stalin is Stalin, and Hitler is Hitler. They are not going to change. Um, but the the people that interest me, the people who whose lives are on the line, and the people who who are making the decisions that have impacts for generations, those are the people that I want to look at. So I kind of, what I tend to do is I have a sense of a texture, which is not a useful thing to explain to anyone who's trying to write. But there is a definite emotional texture that I can feel and has certain color parameters in my head. And I have a character, in this case, I had two, I had Sophie and Lawrence. And I had a kind of solar plexus feeling of what it was going to be like. There was going to be a challenge in the historical era and a challenge in, I knew I was going through the 50s. I knew this was going to be very complex. It it kind of starts in the 40s weaves through the 50s and comes to a final point in the present day. And so I had a sense of an emotional balance point at each of these where a decision would have to be made. And I didn't know what the decision was, but I knew that that the nature of my characters was driving them towards this decision. And then I just had to find the people who would fit into that. And, and, to, and then it becomes quite flexible. So for instance, there's a book that I realized halfway through reading it that I had read in my childhood, um, which was a an autobiography of a, a special operations executive agent. And quite near the front, one of the bits that I remembered from my childhood, in fact, when I was a kid, because it seemed to me the war was still growing up, I, I grew up wanting to be an RAF Spitfire pilot. And my dad had to keep explaining to me that Spitfires were not in operation anymore. And anyway, I'm a girl. And anyway, I'm five foot nothing. And I've got very bad eyesight. And if you add all of those together, I can't be a Spitfire pilot. So, so then unfair. I decided, yeah, desperately, desperately. <laughs> I was at it for months. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll be an SOE agent. And then I read this book, um, The Accidental Agent by John Goldsmith. And part way through is a scene where he's walking through Paris and somebody apparently falls, but actually obviously discover later jumps out of a third or fourth floor window and lands on the ground at his feet. And he looks at the body because what you can't do is go, oh my God, and run away because you're an agent and that's not wise. And this guy was in the process of having his eye gouged out by a fork. And that's why he jumped. 
And that was the moment where I realized that being a secret agent probably wasn't my future. Because <laughs> um, I didn't think I could handle the forks and the eyes thing. I don't um, think many people could, to be fair. Well, no, no, that's the thing. But people jumped knowing that that was what waited for them. And that's the amazing thing, really, really. And some of them were picked up on landing. Anyway, um, so, but earlier in that book, what I hadn't noticed when I was a child was a single sentence saying that the thing about the French resistance was that they behaved as if their country was still their country. And so they would walk around arm in arm singing the Marseillaise, which wasn't wise when it was banned. And and they kept lists of all their friends, because you do. And I, I discovered, sitting on the streets of London for Extinction Rebellion in October, I began to realize, you know, it's really hard to think I'm in a war zone, which is kind of what it felt like, you know, police on one side, us on the other. I have to keep switching my phone off because they are not legally allowed to torture me for my passcode, but if it's on, they can empty it of all of my contacts, which happens to be everybody else that I know in XR, and I must not let this fall into police hands. And it was a very, very strange experience. And I realized, you know, that was, first of all, I chose to be there, and second, it was a week. It mm. wasn't five years of my life that I had not chosen. Um, and so the French resistance was wide open because they kept these lists. And, and you know, one person's picked up and the list is there, then, then this is how 1,700 people end up in, in concentration camps. And, and yet, the sentence in this book was that the one group that were never picked up were called les um, équipes de tueurs, which means teams of killers, teams of assassins. And he says, these were young, very innocent looking people. And it seemed to him that the more anemic and young and innocent they looked, the more dangerous they were. And their sole role was to kill members of the resistance who had betrayed people to the Germans. And their names were not shared by anybody. They had one contact who knew who they were. And they were never touched. Nobody took them up. And I read that sentence and it's, I, you know, you're a writer and your listeners are writers. And there are moments in a, in a research life where your entire body is like lit up like Christmas lights. It's like, oh, that, I want one of those. That's yes. Sophie. Sophie is that person. She's trained as a nurse. She's, she doesn't necessarily have anything, but she does not look like she's the kind of person who's going to cut someone's throat and take their tongue out. But she is that person. And she is implacable. Because again, these are people who have betrayed their own side to the enemy. And there is nothing less forgivable. Um, and, and so that kind of thing, I, I was reading these and, and you know, characters just kind of fall out of the sky for you when, when you've got that kind of input. Um, so, so once I found Sophie, then she wrote her own story, really. It was, she was, she was who she was and she was very driven by things that would drive you under those circumstances. Certainly, I think they would drive me under those circumstances. Absolutely. Um, and then I just, you know, and then how would you feel if the person who you know has tortured to death your friends is, is rescued in front of your eyes by the people that you're working for? How would you fix that? And what would you do? And I really wanted the kind of visceral impact of that to last. And then if you've been, what Sophie is, a kind of double, triple, treble, God knows how many look around agent, and you have the belief that you did not betray anyone to this person, or you didn't betray the person who really matters. But it might not be true. It might be that you said the wrong thing at the wrong time. 
and and you'd live with that for the rest of your life. How would that be? Um, so you know, those sorts of things are what keep us awake at night when we're writing, but they make it worthwhile, also. I think definitely. So I'm fascinated uh, and and a bit daunted by this number of of seventeen drafts. Don't. It's very daunting. There's <laughs> a reason why I'm not writing much at the moment. There's something broke inside me with that. Um, I can absolutely yeah. imagine. So I mean, that feels a bit like forks in the eyes. I'm. What was it that was happening, and and how did you kind of metabolize these drafts? If it's not too traumatic to talk about you know, what you kind of sorted at each point as you were going through these series of drafts. Yeah, it's a whole interesting process because, so let me take you back a bit. When I wrote the Boudicca books, I had a new editor. So, so I started off writing crime thrillers with a particular editor for a particular publishing house. At the point when my shamanic practice took me to, okay, now I have to write these books about this historical character that particular publishing, that particular editor of that particular publishing has said, we'll, we'll publish them to keep you happy, but history doesn't sell. Um, and I was not interested in, these were the books that my life had been for. So um, I got a new editor in a new publishing house and she got the dreaming of the Boudicca books in ways that I think nobody, it was part of the, the process of the dreaming and the amount of help that I got was from from whatever it is that we think gives help, really, um, really moved those books to a place where they have become iconic within a certain group of people, the ones who want to connect to the gods of this land. And so then she, that editor, left. But normally when an editor leaves, they take their stable with them. That's the point. You know, they go from one publishing house to another publishing house and they go, okay, I'm leaving. Do you want to come with me? And you go, yes, of course. <laughs> um, and she left to another part of the same publishing house. And the deal was that she was not allowed to take her stable with her. Oh. And I was with an agent who I think possibly with a different agent, I would have been able to move. And at this, this particular agent, I wasn't. And, and that kind of broke things for me quite badly. And in the end, I got a new agent because I thought, I can't, can't do this. It was too late to go with that editor. But I went from having a woman agent who was lovely. I really, really loved her. She was fantastic and she was a great friend and we worked really well together. And then I got one of the big London agents who was an editing agent because by then my editor was the head of the publishing house, which was a great honour. Um, he was the only one, I was the only one of that, of my, my ex-editor's stable who ended up with the head of the publishing house. But the one thing he didn't have time for was a lot of editing. So then I had an editing agent. And that was a very, it was a very different dynamic. I had been used to write 30, 40,000 words, send it into my, Selena, my editor, and we would wrangle over them. I, I had been known to put drafts on the fire because I was so cross. Um, but usually, you know, my, my partner was primed to say, Selena is always right. I would come downstairs with, with smoke and flame pouring out of my ears. <laughs> but she doesn't get it. She didn't get it. And, and Faith's prime to gay, Selena is always right. Except when she's wrong. And most of the time she's right. So just go back upstairs and work out what it is that you said that isn't right. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think the really good books, there were many drafts, but they, were, they felt like, first of all, it wasn't the completed book. It was, we did them as we went along. And so the book evolved out of the drafting process. And so it felt like there'd be maybe four or five drafts, which is first draft, second draft, third draft, copy edit draft, proof draft. 
And that's that feels like a normal number of drafts. And then I ended up with this new big agent who didn't read anything till it was finished. And then we would have really interesting meetings where we would have, we would meet for four or five hours, and the bottom line would be this isn't working, and the feedback on why it wasn't working would be a huge amount of references to cultural ideas that I didn't... Have you watched this film? No. Okay, let me tell you about the film, and then let me tell you about why the film is important to what you've written. Or have you read this book? No. Okay, let me tell you about this book and then tell you about... And I come home from these very lengthy meetings with notes of about half a page and a head full of, I have absolutely no idea what you want me to do, except it's not what I've done. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. So we went through nine drafts of that with Joan of Arc until I got to a meeting with, you know, I don't think this is ever going to work. I oh, think I need wow. to throw the whole of the historical bit away and start again. What do you think? And he went, yeah, I just didn't know how to say that to you. After nine drafts? Okay. Big deep breath. And we got to draft 10 and I went, you know, I'm not sure it worked again. He went, no, I don't think it did. I said, okay. What, what exactly is it you want me to do? Um, and... And up to point, you know, and the thing was, he was right. He was right. It's just that I found the interpretation of what he was saying quite hard. And and yet the end result was I, I would be ashamed to show you the first draft compared to the final draft. Um and, and then, you know, and then the American we agent had some input and then you know various other people had input. So we maybe got to eleven drafts with the agent and then there would be drafts on top with everybody else having their input. Um so there wasn't very much after that there wasn't throw everything away and start again it would just be you know throw away that 10,000 words and do it differently and that's that's okay that's fine so so when it came to this book the one thing I we sat down with agent and editor and I said the one thing I really don't want to do is multiple drafts when what we need to do is throw one half away because it's not working okay so we agree that from the start if it's not working it's not working okay so I did my first draft and and you know during the drafting process every day you're redrafting what you wrote yesterday and you're redrafting the scene that you're working on. So any scene is redrafted, goodness knows, hundreds of times before it gets to why hand in what I think is a finished draft. And then every single time I have this happy fantasy that someone's going to pick up the phone and go, my God, this is perfect. You don't need to change it. The old, the old copy edit tweet, but it's fine. It hasn't ever happened yet. Um, so then we got, I did the first draft and, and, my father died in the process of it, and I ended up going to Schumacher College to do a master's in sustainable economics because, because shamanic stuff pushed me to do it. And so I handed in what I thought was a finished draft and went off to college, and they went, you know. And I had a meeting, and I went, okay, so let me just guess, which I think it's the contemporary thread's not working, right? And they went, yeah. And they went, okay, I'm suggesting that I throw it away now and start again rather than waiting four or five drafts. What do you think? And they looked at each other and went, yeah, that's probably right. So we did that. We went through that loop twice. Um, and, you know, they were right. They were right. I wasn't, the first time I was trying to write, they said, you know, this is two books. You need to choose which book you're writing and write it, not try and write. I was trying to say too much. Mm. Um, so so we narrowed down to one book. <laughs> and, and, you know, and really that was the, what is it like for the people around Klaus Barbie when he's got out? But also there was that big question that, that is in the book that I had read in um, The Hunt for Zero Point, which was what happens to the soul of a, a nation? What happens to the body politic of a nation when injected 
undiluted into its bloodstream is the virus of fascism. And I, this was, when I first proposed this to them, this was 2014, and Obama was still in his second term, and the worst thing the Republicans could do was Sarah Palin. And, and they were going, is this really relevant? Are you sure this is important? I was going, you trust me, this is really important. <laughs> um, and by the time it came out, you know, it looked like I was EP on everybody else's bandwagon. But, you know, that's probably because it took so fucking long. Um, so anyway, so we've narrowed down to that book. And I did two, I think, I did two different versions of the contemporary story. Because the thing when you're writing a dual timeline, you know, hot tip to people starting out writing, do not write a dual timeline until you absolutely clear that you know what you're doing. You've done an apprenticeship of several books. Because it's not writing two novels and squishing them together. You, you need the reader to want to read both. And that's hard. Even shifting viewpoints within a novel can make people not want to read one person's viewpoint and want to read the other. And this is shifting whole time frames and whole different character sets. And it's hard work for people who increasingly don't want to work hard reading their novels. So you have to make it really clear from the get-go that you have to read both frames. If you're going to get the story, there are things in, in time frame A, questions set up in time frame A that will only be answered in time frame B, and more questions set up in time frame B that will only be answered in time frame A. And you as a reader, are going to enjoy the process of this because this is going to give you a complete picture. And, and trust me, it'll be in monochrome if you skip over one half or the other time frame A or time frame B. And writing that is really hard. Um, and I think I probably only really began to understand how to do it by the time we were on draft 12 or 13. And then, you know, and so when I say 17 drafts, that's including the the proof draft, the copy draft, and the editor's two final drafts. So, so probably we take those those four off. There were only thirteen. Only actual, thirteen. That's nothing. Um, take take it away and and do it. But but only two of those were thrown an entire thread away and start again. You know, the rest were you know this concept is too clunky. We need to make this work better. Um, so it's hard work, but but genuinely, I was I, I hated the process of it because fundamentally I'm very lazy, but I did know that each iteration was a significant improvement on the one before. Is that how you stayed motivated? Because that's something that I would wonder because at a certain point when someone says, okay, this isn't quite working or this isn't working right. At what point do you say, am I able to do this? Is it possible for me to make this happen? Especially when I didn't really understand what it was that they wanted. That was hard because, because I'd had such a good relationship with the Really get edited. We might have screamed at each other in coffee shops in Birmingham, but but first of all, I deep down I didn't know she was right, and second, it was absolutely clear what I needed to do. <laughs> um, it was it was hard. It was really very hard. I ended up with shingles, um, partly because I was writing the final drafts of this while trying to write a film script, while trying to write the dissertation for the thesis, and then we decided to move house. You know, second hot tip: don't do that. It's really bad for your energy systems. Um, so so I did end up very sick. For a while, and and you know something did break. I I've got three books on the go at the moment, but they're all going very slowly. And I have a new editor and a new agent because that did not work. I just got to the end of that one. You know, I'm not doing this again. I I can't. But that particular book, it worked, and the end result was better than anything I've written in terms of its actual quality of writing. Much much better than anything I've written before. So yes. and you know, that knowledge is worth it. Anyway, you've got a contract. You have to. They won't pay you if you don't. That's true. So, yeah. 
So there's that motivation. And then the thought that, yeah, I think that the original idea, the original concept is fascinating enough that you can't let go of it, I suppose. Yeah. And Sophie and Lawrence and Pico, you know, they lived in me. I dreamt them. I walked with them up the hill. They talked to me and then their stories needed to be out in the world. And, and in the end, I've got a commitment to them to get their stories right, which sounds very flaky, doesn't it? But, but it feels no, really it doesn't. Yeah, I think it's something when you think about them, I always think when working on something writing where I've left the character, when I've walked away from yes, writing. Exactly. And yes. it's like, where have I left this person? Are they yeah. just going to be yeah. there forever if I don't fix yeah. this? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, good thought. Exactly that. Yeah. And you had some really horrible places that your characters ended up in, so I don't think you could live with leaving them there. No, no absolutely. No, and that's, that's the thing. It was, it was very much harder because, you know, the stuff that happened to the woman we know as Joan of Arc was grim, but there was one of her. And the stuff that was happening to, you know, the Marquis and the SOE, it was, it was just, you forget that people can do this to other people. And within living memory, this, this is how people behave. It's, it, was, it was a very odd thing to live through the re-awareness of that. And it was fascinating to me that even though we think of, okay, the war is over, you know, in the mid forties, but for these people, the war was really never over because of what they'd experienced. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and we are living through the implications of what happened then. You know, I think that's something that we forget is our presence is built on their presence. And, and it's not like we've escaped from this. You know, we are living through the reality of what happens to the body politic of a nation if the undiluted virus of fascism is directed, that is injected directly into you. This is, this is the world that we live in. We're living with the politics of us versus Russia when, when that did not necessarily have to happen. There's a point in, this, in the story where Sophie in the 50s is taking pictures of a railway line being taken up by the Soviets in order to take the, the steel, the, the actual railway lines back because they don't have them and they can't make them. And they want, a, they want an actual railway somewhere near Moscow. And, and somebody says, Celine says to her, you realize there's a picture of a, of a track being lifted, looks very much like a picture of a track being laid. And that came directly from somebody's autobiography that they had sent a picture of this railway track being removed by the Russians and it had been circulated as proof that the Russians were laying a line to the East German border in order to invade. Because there was a narrative that needed to be spun, that there was this new enemy that needed to be fought in order to justify the money that people wanted to keep going to their own little victims. And it was wholly untrue. It is and, fascinating what you can do with a photograph. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a, it's a grainy black and white taken in you know, the middle of the night by somebody who's risking their life and a very, you know, it's not that I'm suggesting that, that Soviets were lovely people, but that the Cold War was an invention. And it may have been an invention of both sides, but there was things like that. Anyone who suggested that this was not necessary simply lost their job. Um, there's, a whole, there's a whole other story of how that narrative was spun. And, and then you think, so what narratives are being spun now? It's not like fake news is new. It's that we know a little bit more about how fake it is now. Whereas then, 
people's solar stuff. There's an amazing I discovered after the war. So so we all know that the Enigma machine was decrypted. We were able to read it. So after the war, that obviously was classified information. And the British government handed out Enigma machines to everyone, all of the governments of the then Commonwealth, with, um, you know, look, guys, there's this amazing machine that the, the brilliant Germans created, and nobody can break it. It's amazing. You can send anything you like to your embassies anywhere in the world, and nobody will be able to break it. And of course, we could read every word, but they didn't know that because that was classified. And there was a, and because you know, because that was classified, and there was, I read a, um, an encyclopedia of spying, and I can't remember what it was, that, that detailed, and it was written in the fifties, and it said that there was a particularly attractive lady spy in the. German embassy in America, whose job it was to sleep with anyone who would sleep with her and discover all. Of, and this is how we knew about the um, convoys going across the Atlantic and how we were able to stop certain things. And and it's totally untrue. It's, it's that's a complete fabrication and and was a cover up for again for the Enigma and for the whole of the Bletchley everything that they broke. But somebody thought that people would believe that, and I suspect people did believe it. But, but, you know, it's just kind of floated out there as, as a fact. And if we didn't know now about the whole of Bletchley, somebody would probably be writing novels about this amazingly attractive lady spy in the German embassy in Washington who, who didn't exist because it was a cover. And so, you know, there's so much of this stuff that the stuff that we are told is just so far from being remotely true or credible once you know what actually is true. And I think, and, and so now I just look at the stuff that we're being told and think how much of, particularly international stuff, is fictional and how much of it is still the ripples from the decisions that were made then. Yeah, and then I think about what are the books going to be in 20, mm. 25 years when we have some yeah. distance and hopefully get yeah. to see, you know, the full scope of what's going yeah. on now. yeah. Yeah, if we ever do. Yes, yes, absolutely. When when the classified documents become unclassified every every January first. Yeah, because there's lots of things. You know, Tony Blair classified stuff around um, God, the supposed suicide of that civil servant, and and he classified them for hundred years. We will not be alive when that is declassified. How disappointing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that those of us who who think that there's something extremely fishy going on there will never live to find out what it was. Perhaps we'll just have to write the books about what we think yeah, is going I, on. Yeah, and then later, later people yeah. can figure out if yeah, we were yeah. right. Yeah, we were right or not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that our civilization is going to last that long. But yes, yeah, you haven't read the deep adaptation paper, have you? I can tell. It's mm. lovely, you know, this idea that we're going to survive. We're still going to be 25, 30, 100 years from now. Um, anyway, there we go. So, so, yes, I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> I don't know, but this is also good. I, I don't even mind. Redrafting things. Yes, um, redrafting and all of that. So, so how how have you stepped forward? I mean, this book has been a huge success. It's it's won awards. It's oh, it's nice. all over the place. It's actually really interesting. Um, as as I live in Berlin, seeing it here, it's actually illegal. Oh, really? It's illegal to publish anything with a swastika on it. So yes, your cover design is, different cover. is yeah. completely different, um, yeah. Yeah. which is fascinating. But it is everywhere. Um, you can find it so easily, which is great. Yeah. So you've gone from this sort of 17 drafts, oh my God, is this ever going to work, to a prize winner. And 
And how are you now? What are you looking forward towards and, and what are you working on having gotten to this this side of it? That's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so a number of things. So first is we've sold the television rights to Tractory, which yes. is great. Uh, yes, and we sold them to somebody because I've sold the television rights to pretty much everything I've ever done. And I've sold the television rights to the Boudicca books several times. And you'll notice they haven't been made. So, right. so there is a thing where where people buy up the rights in order that nobody else has them, not because they actually have any intention of making whatever it is they bought. But this guy, I think, really has some intention of making it. He, he's one of the producers of the Harry Potter series, and he's, I think, I think this is for real, but, you know, I'll believe it when it's out there. So, um, so I have, I've got the outline of A Web of Spies, um, which is really focused on the German resistance, because I think of all the people with astonishing courage, the German resistance has to be really high up the list because the people in France, you know, their deaths, as they were caught, were appalling, but they were living amongst their friends. It felt like home. And their friends, for the large part, certainly by 44, were on their side. If you were in the German resistance, anybody could turn you in at any moment. Um, and, and, you know, people are at least kind to their own friends and family when they've turned the whole tribal thing is, is very vicious. And there was also a very interesting story of um, that I discovered, I read a book about the tea forces during the Second World War and they were amazing because um, what happened was the, the soldiers would go in, let's say they'd taken a, a position on a hill and they would go in and there'd be stuff, uh, boxes of stuff, electronics, tricks, that they don't know what they are but because you don't know what they are, if you're an intelligent soldier, you're going to destroy this right down to its smaller than component parts because you might lose that hill tomorrow. And whatever this thing is that you don't know what it is, it might be used to kill you. So you're just going to basically vaporize it. And the problem is that Germany was 20 years ahead of pretty much the whole of the rest of the world at this point in almost every science. In fact, in every science, in rocket design, in electronics, in engineering, in chemistry, in biology, in biochemistry in industrial, agricultural chemistry. In all of these, Germany was massively ahead. In fact, I have a, a theory, which is not mine alone, that the reason that America came into the war was basically an act of industrial piracy. Because by 45, the, they'd created these T-forces, and the T-force was a group that was mostly scientists with some quite high-powered soldiers. That was the American version. Uh, they had platoons of these. Uh, the British version was young boys who were actually too young to have signed up and the old men who'd been invalided out, and two trucks. Um, and whichever side you're on, but our, our guys still got into Denmark and were the reason that Denmark was not behind the Iron Curtain because they got in and they rose, they raised a Union Jack before the Russians got there by about half an hour. Wow. And that was enough to keep Denmark our side of the Iron Curtain, which I would love to write that book at some point. Anyway, so the, their point was they went in with the advancing troops and they locked down anything that we didn't know what it was because it was going to be really important and it did not need to be turned into matchwood. And by the time the American T-Force had got to Berlin, they had shipped home 40 tons, four zero metric tons of blueprints back to the States. Wow. And when they were translated and handed out to the scientists who should have known, they went, you know, we don't understand this. And they're going, you know, good translation. And the guys are going, it's nothing to do with the translation. This is science is beyond us. And that's why Operation Paperclip happened, which was a certain branch of what would then later become the CIA sends in people to identify and get out 
the German scientists who will understand this and their friends and their family. In fact, you know, if, you, if you're the guy who wrote the paper on a particular bit of engineering and you go, I'm not moving unless you take my entire extended family and my neighbours and my dog, they'd go, okay, they're coming. Um, and they were given false names and false identities, some of them as if they were Holocaust survivors, which is the kind of thing that makes my blood vaporise in my veins. And this is, this is the undiluted virus of fascism. They went into academia, they went into industry, they went into NASA, they went into politics, they went into teaching. Anyway, um, as part of this, the British tea force rocked up at a bunker as everyone's heading for Berlin. And in this bunker, there are missiles with warning signs all over them that they have never seen before. So they lock it down and they send one of the missiles home. And at Portendown, first of all, they discover that this is a missile that's designed to explode at 100 feet and aerosolize its contents, which will then spread over a quarter of a mile radius. And the contents are an organophosphate poison, which will kill if you get two drops on exposed skin. Wow. Which, remarkably enough, I don't know if you remember the Skripal um, poisoning that happened near Salisbury year before last and was allegedly... Yes. They kept using the phrase, this is a toxin of a type designed in Russia, which yes. apparently is all, all that the civil service would let them do. This is exactly the same. It was in Germany in 1943 and it went to Porton Down, which is 12 miles from where these people were poisoned. Um, so, so, so I, I read this. I, and the thing is, Hitler would not let them use it because Hitler had been gassed in the First World War and he had an absolute edict against using that nature of chemical weapons. But somebody had ordered these made and stockpiled. And so I thought it was a very interesting story. Suppose Lawrence in his period, we've got periods of Lawrence's life that we haven't looked into yet. Um, supposing he's running agents in the German resistance who are close, because there was also a story, the SOE got somebody within range of killing Hitler and Churchill told them to stand down, allegedly. And I don't think it was Churchill. Because this is another, this is one of these bits you can feel, the smoke and mirrors and the waving hands, this isn't Churchill. You know, this, it just wouldn't be, this is somebody going, no, 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 Hitler's, Hitler's the safest person to have in this post at this moment. Do not kill him now. Because the guys who replace him are worse. Trust us on this. And supposing you're Lawrence and you're in London, when that kind of strange circumstance where you've got all this information coming in, but you don't know how much of it is true. You don't know what you can trust and what is complete fiction and you've got an agent a cousin a second cousin a girl close enough to Hitler that she can kill him and you get confirmation that this particular armament exists and because if they had launched that the war would have been over within 24 hours there would have been if you burst 100 of these over London there would have been nothing left within London alive nothing wow and 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 the war would have been over you know and not in our favor so you're in London and you get word that this could happen. Do you believe it? Because it's way out of our capacity. We didn't know anything that could do that. But it's close enough that you think you might have to believe it. And your cousin has just got close enough to Hitler to kill him. And the only way to stop her is to betray her. So, and then in the present day, you want to undo the damage that you did to her and her children who were alive at the time. So I think this, so that's the basic plot of Weber's Prize. However... I got to sitting down to start writing that and I had just read the deep adaptation paper and I wasn't joking. I think everybody should read the deep adaptation paper. It is, so I'll give you the, the very brief on that. It's a guy, Jem Bendel, who's a professor of sustainability at Cumbria University. 
And in 2017, he decided stuff was not adding up and he gave himself a year's unpaid sabbatical, which I'm deeply impressed with anyway. Yes. And he went back to Cambridge where he did his undergraduate. And he went and talked to everybody that he could think of to talk to and their friends and their friends' friends. And he came back and he wrote this 36-page paper. And he sent it off to one of the sustainability magazines, journals, a peer-reviewed journal. And they went, nope, the peer reviewers won't let you publish it because you haven't cited anybody else reaching this conclusion. And he says, that's because nobody else has reached this conclusion. Uh, so it's a world first. You could publish a world first. And they went, you know what? Oh, yeah, I think you should be telling people this. So no, we're not going to publish and so he published it himself, and it is now the single most downloaded scientific paper of all time. And his conclusion is that we have between five and ten years before complete societal collapse if we don't act now. Wow. And he published that in August 2018. And it is so Extinction Rebellion basically arose. Gail Bradbrook was trying to get Extinction Rebellion off the ground, and somebody in her circle went to the first of the gatherings that Jim Bendel convened after he published that paper and they came back and they said, I have seen professors of climate science in uncontainable weeping on the floor. This is so much worse than we knew. We have to act, we have to listen to Gail, we have to start Extinction Rebellion. So that's really how Extinction Rebellion, it, you know, the idea was there but it really took off after, after that. And and I wept for a week when I read it. It's, it's, it's terrifying but I have not found any holes in his assessment of the science. I hadn't realised, so for instance, the IPCC report, which says we can, you know, hold things at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. First of all, they, they fudged when they started measuring. Mm. They didn't actually start measuring at pre-industrial levels. They started measuring quite a ways in. And second, they're basing this assessment on the idea that we can get carbon capture and storage to industrial levels of action and it doesn't exist yet. This is a technology that we don't have. And they're predicating their assessment on it working. And it isn't there. And, and you know, the whole thing, it just the whole house of cards comes down. I listened to a podcast with Jim Mandel that he recorded last March. And he said there are three things that will, you know, basically, for me, they, they will denote that we are beyond tipping points. And that's first one is if the Arctic and Antarctic ice caps reduced to less than 50% of their normal one summer. The second is if the methane hydrates, which are in huge, vast frozen blocks under the Arctic Sea, begin to boil off because methane is 86 times more potent than CO2. And the final one is if the forests of the world become net carbon emitters instead of net carbon sinks. And all three of these happened this summer. So he was speaking before they happened. We are so close to tipping points of climate change beyond which there is no going back. And so writing a book, fascinating though it would be, about the Second World War and its implications on current geopolitics that could take me another two or three years and then it's published a year after that, I just can't see the point, to be honest. Um, so so you asked what I'm doing. So, so I'm doing a number of things. I've got, there's a book called 2084 that I have on the go because I think that might be relevant. I'm yes. also, I've got... Um, the Boudicca books, I left in the first section of the first book, she, the woman who becomes the Boudicca, the girl who becomes the Boudicca, makes a sword with a bear on the hilt. And she is buried with that sword in her chest in a crystal cave in Wales. And that was my thread for an Arthurian series. And so the point about Arthur, whatever one thinks the Artos is, is that it comes back in the hour of Britain's greatest need to save us. 
And I said, this is not the hour of Britain's greatest need. I don't want to be around when it's happening. Yes. So I'm, so, and, and now I've done my apprenticeship on dual timelines. And so I am writing Dreaming the Wounded Bear, which is, so I think that the sword wielded, carried by the person who was the Boudicca coming back is the artos. And I just had to figure out what could that bring that would be of value to us as we head into complete societal collapse? How can it help us to find levels of local resilience networks that we're going to need to keep ourselves fed and clothed and safe and, and with the emotional resilience that we're going to need? So I'm working on that. But I also I've just launched yesterday. We launched something called Accidental Gods on, on a website called accidentalgods.life, which is really my, I spent the last year, this time last year, we, we, my partner and I sit with the fire every, every winter solstice and meditate and look over the past year and particularly look into what do you need of us for the next year. And what I got was a really clear two things. First of all, I needed to start teaching at scale because I teach shamanic work, but I teach to you know groups of 20 or less because I think... 20 or fewer, sorry. Um, because I think um, anything more is not safe in terms of the shamanic work. But I need to start teaching. It took the first group who'd been around the full cycle, my cycle of 10 different places. It took them 15 years. And of the many hundreds who started, nine ended up doing the full thing. And so what I got was nine every 15 years is not going to cut it. Um, and the other thing was an image of teaching to really quite large numbers of people in the States. So I don't fly anymore. You know, I'm extinct rebellion. And anyway, I hate flying. I haven't flown since 2002. What are you talking about? And, and within three days of that image, I'd had an email from someone saying, okay, I know you don't go to the States, but um, there's quite a lot of us and there's only one of you and there's lots of flights to you or there's one flight to us. That was, that was basically what it boiled down to. So I ended up going to the States and teaching at scale in the States. And part of, so, so in the, unfolding of the year has been what is this about because what am I teaching what is it that needs to be taught and what is it that I can teach and accidental gods is the answer to that so I, so the, the elevator speech is that evolution happens to any species under moments of intense pressure this moment is as intense as I ever want to experience I think it's as intense as it needs to be we're due an evolutionary step but we don't have time for the slow DNA. You know, I have kids who've got slightly longer legs and they have kids who have slightly longer legs and, and in, in a couple of hundred generations, we've got slightly longer legs. We don't have time for that. But we are at the point where we could conceivably, the next evolution step could be one of consciousness, which is to say we do it and we make the step, not our children's 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 children, us. But we have to choose it. But the, the amazing thing is that we've got the capacity now in terms of our understanding of neuroscience to make this happen. So, and this is not a new idea. Conscious evolution has been around as a concept since the 80s. But everything that I've looked at, it just seems to think that if we can just meditate a little bit more deeply or philosophize for a little bit longer or, or sit on a mountain without eating or drinking for, for just a bit longer, something will work it out. We'll work it out and then we'll do something and then we'll be there. And I really, you know, the whole of my shamanic self recoils at that because I think we are extraordinarily evolved and we are magical and we are astonishingly creative, but it isn't necessarily that we have all the answers. Certainly my experience in my own life is letting go of the idea that I have all the answers has been absolutely crucial 
to getting to where I needed to be. And what I need to do instead is to learn to connect with everything else that has life and through which consciousness may flow. And then I need to be able to take my place in a way that's free of ego, free of judgment, free of fear, free of all of the things that get in the way, free of projection particularly, in order to be able to ask, what do you want me to do? And be flexible enough to answer that, embody the answer to that in the moment. So what we spend a year doing is really trying to unpick what are the steps towards conscious evolution? What are the steps to getting to that place where I can stand in my own power, in the knowledge that I am the right person, in the right place, at the right time, with clarity, with connection, with compassion, with coherence, in that level of self-confidence, in that level of connectedness to everything else. And we've broken it down to four things, which are, first of all, connecting to the living world. Second, growing into that sense of coherence where I can see my own processes enough to step away from them. Asking for help in a way that I can receive answers that are coherent and useful and authentic. So that means I've had to have practice and I've had to check those things out. And then we need to let go of everything that we believe to be true and take the empty-handed leap into the void so that we can ask that question of what do you want of us in a way that is completely uncontaminated by our projections because no problem is solved from the mindset that created it and we embody that mindset at the moment. So Accidental Gods has gone live and I'm hoping to build a community of people who want to do this. We've broken it down to really small steps. I've, I've written workbooks on habits. I, I'm a real neuroscience geek. I did my dissertation at college on the amygdala and language and how language works and, and how political parties use language. So, so being able to explore neuroscience has been just so exciting. And it's so, we know, you know, it, neuroscience, neuroplasticity, what fires together, wires together, it's been around for 100 years, but we're beginning to apply it in ways that we understand now that we can change the actual wiring of our own minds which we didn't know before, and it hadn't been proved. And now it's being proved on a daily basis. There's more known about neuroscience now than the whole sum of everything that was known before. And by this time next year, provided we're still here, it more will be known still. And this is the actual working definition of exponential growth. And it's so exciting because it's there are so many people looking at what consciousness is and how we can do the things that the spiritual path, Buddhism, and, and things, have been saying for three and a half thousand years, but people are not doing it because we haven't got eight hours a day to sit in a monastery practicing, looking at our own process. So we need to find ways where people with busy lives can actually integrate this into their lives in a way that goes beyond the bullshit and beyond the projection and beyond the happy thoughts and actually just works. So that's what we're trying to do. That was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> but it was really... <laughs> I think really inspiring and, and really important. I mean, I think that, you know, we can sit around and write books, but I think all of us hope that writing books will make a difference and that it will make the world better. So I think this is just as important as anything else. And I want to thank you so, so much for, for taking the time to talk and learn more about your book and what you're doing and so many things that I think everyone will be very excited about. So we'll link to everything. We'll link to the book. We'll thank link you. to accidental gods and and everything else and wonder. hopefully you. this will will spread everything even further 
Thank you so much. And, and thank you for doing this podcast. It's just so good to have somebody talking to writers about writing. And, and yeah, it's lovely. Thank you. And your voice is glorious. Oh, thank you. Hello. So is yours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.